what do you call an instrument that looks like a cross between a regular electric guitar and an electric bass? You call it a baritone guitar. Tuned either a fourth or a fifth below a standard guitar, a baritone gives a nice full sound that actually turns up more places than you'd think. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and as always, I'm so glad that you joined me to talk about music played on electric guitars, music played on electric basses, and sometimes, like today, music played on baritone guitars. There are so many ways that you can support the creation of Strong Songs. You can become a patron, you can make a one-time PayPal donation, or you can just spread the word, share the show on social media, tell your friends about it. You can also just listen, enjoy the show, and learn something about music, because hey, in the end, that's really why I make it. On this episode, it's time to tackle one of the most beautifully simple, simply beautiful songs ever written, a late 60s masterpiece that sprang forth seemingly fully formed, despite the fact that the man who wrote it didn't think it was finished. So, let's drive out to the country, climb up on the pole, and get on the line. written a song, you know how hard it can be to tell when the song is done. You might have one idea for the song, maybe a really great little melodic hook that you figure out how to work into a nice chorus. So then you sit down and you start thinking about the verse. Well, we need a verse that's going to lead into the chorus. So what might be a nice way to get into it? Then you spend some time kind of working on that. And soon you've got a good verse and a good chorus. Okay, nice. So you've spent so long working on those two parts of the song that you start to kind of, you're not really sure what to do next. Maybe there can be an instrumental section. Does this song need a bridge? What about an intro? What's the form going to look like? How do I know when I've actually created all of the parts of this song that I need to create? And when do I stop and just say, you know what, the song is done. It's complete. When it comes to songwriting, there's the common wisdom, and then there's the fact that often, the common wisdom is wrong. Common wisdom says you kind of want three things in a song, maybe a verse, a chorus, and a bridge, some third thing that's going to add some variety, or give you an opportunity to bring the song to a climax and tie all of the thematic and musical ideas together, some final third thing that gives you a nice bit of variety. But common wisdom is often wrong. Those times when it's best to throw out common wisdom, those tend to be when something extraordinary has happened. One part of the song just works so well, it fits so beautifully, it makes such an impact that it would be a mistake to add more just because that's what you'd normally do. Every so often a song contains something so indelible, so perfect and evocative, that that's the song. A single lyrical refrain sung over a single chord progression is all you need. And I need you more than won't you And I want you for all time And the Wichita lineman Is still on the line On this episode, I'm so excited to talk about Jimmy Webb and Glenn Campbell's 1968 country pop masterpiece, Wichita Lineman. Recorded by some of the best studio musicians of the 1960s, before its songwriter even thought it was finished, Wichita Lyman is such a rare sort of song, a three-minute composition in which every single piece combines to tell an evolving story of elevated loneliness. I'm a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another Released in 1968 by singer-guitarist Glenn Campbell on his album of the same name, Wichita Lineman did great when it was released. It charted, it made the top 10 charts in America, it also charted in the UK. It was an indelible hit, a song beloved by millions of people. In the decades since then, it's been elevated even further. It routinely turns up on lists of the greatest songs ever composed. And just a couple of years ago, the Library of Congress selected it for the National Recording Registry. But here's the thing, all of that might be true, but for most of my life, I had never heard this song. 
I started making strong songs in 2018, and pretty early on, actually, when I started soliciting listener emails, I started getting emails from people asking me when I was going to talk about Wichita linemen. The emails would usually run something along the lines of, this song really affects me, it's one of the most beautiful songs I've ever heard, and I'm curious why that is, what this song is doing, this song, Wichita Lineman. And I would hear about it and I would think, this this must be a song about a football player, I guess. I've never, I've never heard it. The name sounds a little familiar. Maybe I've seen a reference somewhere, but I kind of assumed, okay, it must be about someone who like used to play football for a Kansas football team and now his glory days are behind him and maybe it's kind of a sad song. And that was my assumption. That's how ignorant I was of this classic. But then, in year two of Strong Songs, I made an episode about God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. I may not always love you But long as there are stars above you And in the process of making that episode about that wonderful song, I learned more about The Wrecking Crew, the team of studio musicians in Los Angeles in the 1960s who played on so many hit records, these invisible heroes of music who played on, among other things, the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. If you should ever leave me, will life still go? In the process of making that episode, I became fascinated by The Wrecking Crew, this this group of musicians who, of course, are known by other musicians, but are lesser known to the public. And I started learning more about them. And I watched this wonderful documentary called The Wrecking Crew that's all about them. And in the documentary, you meet all of these recurring characters, these musicians who played together on all these records, people like Hal Blaine and Barney Kessel, Al Casey and Carol Kay, these legendary studio musicians who weren't household names despite playing on so many different records. And among them was a guitar player, a fantastic studio guitar player named Glenn Campbell. He would ask Tedesco, how does that figure go or this figure go? You know? Right, exactly. And then he would sit there and work it out and we'd make the records and it was always perfect. Yeah, well, he had a certain thing that he offered that they oh. wanted. Wonderful ear and a wonderful facility on the instrument. That's Lou McCreary and Julius Wechter, a trombonist and percussionist, talking about their time working with Glenn Campbell, who was primarily working as a studio guitarist with those Wrecking Crew players in the 60s, despite the fact that he was a wonderful singer and also a very handsome guy. He kind of had that front man energy to him, but he was a great guitar player, and that was the work he was doing. Carol Kay, the bassist in the Wrecking Crew, also fondly remembers him. Glenn came up with great ideas. He and his solos were just super. And then all of a sudden, he's a singing star. Well, he always could, could sing. We used to kid him about, oh, he's standing up and singing now. He's going to be a big star. But he became a big star. Well, it's knowing that your door is always open and your path is free to walk. Good evening, ladies. So those are excerpts from The Wrecking Crew, directed by Danny Tedesco, who's actually the son of the guitarist, Tommy Tedesco, who played with The Wrecking Crew. It's a really, really cool documentary, and I recommend watching it. And what I learned when I was watching it, I was I mainly wanted to just get a sense of The Wrecking Crew and see, you know, how they collaborated with the Beach Boys while I was working on that episode. But actually, there's a whole section in there about Glenn Campbell, and a lot of it focuses on Wichita linemen. So here was this song that I'd gotten all these emails about, and my curiosity was fully piqued, and I decided I was going to find out what it was that made this song so special. So I settled into a comfortable chair, put on my best pair of headphones, and really listened to the song. And oh man, what a song. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road So for starters, no, this song is not about a football player, American or otherwise. The type of lineman that Wichita Lineman is about is actually a telephone repairman, a guy who goes out and fixes the lines. And it's a very lonely job and a very evocative one. And this is a song about being up high on a telephone pole, working on the wire, all alone while reflecting on the almost transcendental beauty of that loneliness. So the fascinating thing about Wichita Lineman is that it is musically a fairly simple and certainly straightforward song, but the experience of listening to it is still a rich and complex experience because it's so emotionally complex. Like, I've talked about a lot of complicated songs on this show before, Bohemian Rhapsody, or heck, God Only Knows. I mean, that's a very harmonically complicated song. 
Wichita alignment is unusual harmonically, but it's not super complicated. And moreover, just in terms of the form and the variety, it's a very simple song. In fact, you've heard every element of the song that exists. You've heard the intro, you've heard the verse, and you've heard what I guess is the second verse, the second half of the verse. That's it. That's all there is. This song is three minutes long. It gets in, it repeats a couple of times, and then it gets out. But it's so immaculately put together, and it centers around such an evocative lyrical turn of phrase that it just sticks in your memory and takes on this almost mythic quality the more you think about it and the more you listen to it. I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine And the Wichita lineman Is still on the line All right, vital stats. Wichita Lyman was written by a young professional songwriter named Jimmy Webb. It was written with Glenn Campbell in mind for one of Glenn Campbell's upcoming albums, and he sent it off to Campbell to work with the Wrecking Crew in the studio to begin just kind of recording it, but he didn't think it was finished because he'd only written a verse, and he you know, he kind of just thought, well, this can't be the whole song, but he sent it to them anyways just to give them something to work with, and as the story goes, Webb comes to visit in the studio and say, hey, by the way, what did you think of Wichita Lineman? What do we need to do with that? And Glenn Campbell says to him, actually, it's done. We recorded the whole thing. We just finished it. I put a guitar solo down to be the kind of third thing, and we're done. Check it out. And they played it for him, and the rest is history. Webb and Campbell have both talked quite a bit about this song over the years, though I'm basing a lot of my understanding of the history of this song on a really cool book by a writer named Dylan Jones. It's called Wichita Lineman Searching in the Sun for the World's Greatest Unfinished Song. It actually only came out a couple years ago in 2019, and it goes to show the impact that this song has had, that someone could write a whole book about it that winds up being a really interesting read that gets into the history of the song and the way that it was written and recorded, and also just kind of a broader view of America at that time. I really recommend that book. It's very cool. So anyways, that's the story of this song. Jimmy Webb writes kind of an outline, a first idea. He sends it off to Glenn Campbell and their producer, Al DeLore, and they get to work in the studio and kind of just record the thing. And then they show it to Jimmy Webb and they're like, dude, this song sounds pretty good. Al DeLore finishes the orchestrations and the arrangements. They get the recording finished and they wind up with a classic on their hands. So let's get into it. Let's take this song apart and figure out how it works and what it is that gives it that luminous, elevated sensation that it gives. It's so dreamlike, it's so beautiful, and um, I think that there are some musical techniques at play that help explain why it has those attributes. I know I need a small vacation so Wichita Lineman, of course, featuring Glenn Campbell on guitar and lead vocals. It featured the great Carol Kay on bass. Jim Gordon was playing drum set. Al Casey also played some electric guitar. That core studio band was joined by a string section and a horn section, which were orchestrated by Al DeLore, who also produced this record. And what I think is so fascinating about Wichita Lineman is that it starts in a very ordinary way. The opening vamp, the opening four bars of this song, it could be any song. It could be just a really straightforward country song, and then actually the opening verse also kind of the case. It starts so ordinary, and then gradually over the course of the song, it performs this sort of transformation where it just becomes something completely different. It starts as just a song about a guy doing his job, and then over the course of the song, it sort of floats up into the stratosphere and becomes this beautiful abstract ode to love and longing. And that's the magic of the song. It's that contrast between those two things, the mundane and the numinous. And I think what the song is kind of trying to say about the fact that those two things actually coexist a lot more often than you might think. So let's start before that transformation takes place at the very beginning of the song. I am a lineman for the... 
So let's just talk about those opening four bars because it's actually a really important intro once you can kind of see it in context up against the rest of the song. So this intro, very straightforward. It's just two chords, starts on an F major chord, and then it goes to a B flat over F, the four over an F. So it's just one to four. I mean, a really, really simple chord progression. And I guess Wichita Lineman is in the key of F. So this is a one chord at the very beginning, a nice placid starting point. such a great little bass riff there too. That's a great example of the kind of material that studio musicians like Carol Kay contribute to recordings like this. And Glenn Campbell actually talks about how she came up with that riff. Playing Wichita Lineman, uh, it had a chord chart. I don't think it had any part written. She came up with da 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 you know. She says, how about this for a kickoff on Wichita Lineman? And she came up with that. It's just a great example of how collaborative music is and how even the most mercenary studio musician is still making creative contributions to every recording. And of course, that was kind of the magic of the Wrecking Crew was that all of these musicians were always bringing their own ideas in. And sometimes they'd be playing by ear, they'd be playing off of a really simple chart. And that's how you get something as indelible as that nice little bass intro, which nowadays, I mean, is just totally associated with this song. And when you hear those bass notes from Carol Kay, you know that it's time to hear the story of the Wichita Lineman. There are a couple of other musical elements in that intro that I want to mention because they'll be more important later. First of all, there's the string section. Again, this was written by Al Delory, the producer. An absolutely beautiful string arrangement, and then later, string and horn arrangement on this. I mean, that arrangement really elevates this whole thing. The strings sound beautiful right off of the start. I mean, there's just a nice, lush, very sort of ethereal sound that the strings are getting. But a big part of that is another instrument that they're joined by there in the middle channel. So when I was first beginning my prep work on this episode, I just found myself utterly enchanted by and flummoxed by this instrument, this weird sound. It's like an almost like a rotary sound. There's an attack that sounds kind of like a vibraphone. It might actually be a vibraphone mixed in with this sound, but I just couldn't place it. It was like spinning and kind of phasing in and out with itself. What is that sound? And it plays throughout the whole recording, as you'll hear, and I just couldn't figure it out. And I looked around, I mean, I looked around quite a bit to see if anyone had really said what this instrument was, and for the longest time, at least looking online, I couldn't find it. Like, what is that there in the middle? so beautiful, but I couldn't tell what it was. I went to my buddy Sam Howard, amazing bass player, really great ears, knows a ton of instruments. Sam, what do you think this instrument is? And he's like, it could be an organ. It sounds kind of like an organ, maybe like a Farfisa organ or something like that, one of those 1960s organs. And it turns out Sam was pretty close. In Dylan Jones's book, he goes in at length about the instrument that was used. It was a Gull Branson electronic organ that was actually owned by Jimmy Webb. And they loved that sound that they got out of it, that sort of rotary sound, just a certain setting of the levers and knobs on the organ got this sound that sounded to them like the kind of high-frequency noises that you might hear on a telephone line if you were a lineman doing repairs. The stage is set, lazy telephone wires vibrating in the light of the afternoon sun, and so our protagonist introduces himself. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another So I've spoken before about how Wichita Lineman doesn't follow traditional song form. This is the verse, but it's really just kind of the first half of the verse. And in reality, this song is kind of just a verse that happens three times, and that's the entirety of the song. There's an intro and an outro, but really it's just a verse. So it's basically this one big melodic statement, and the chord progression actually works that way too. It's just one continuous chord progression that goes for 17 bars. So these first seven bars are basically the first half, and it's important to distinguish them from the second half because they're very different, both musically and also thematically. 
So like I mentioned, this section of the song doesn't actually return to an F major, even though this song is sort of technically in the key of F major. The verse starts on a B flat major 9, and it's a 9 chord because the melody actually goes up to that C, which is the ninth in the key of B flat. So it's a B flat major 7 chord with a 9 on top. Really nice sounding chord. After that comes an F major 7 over A, and then a B flat over C, which is kind of a C sus sound. Then a D minor 7, quickly to A minor 7, resolving to a G major kind of a sus G into a G major, and then a D sus that resolves to a D major. Now that is a really nice chord progression. It's pretty artful actually. It moves in kind of unexpected places without totally sounding like it's jumping around. But it's actually kind of a feat to start on a B flat major 9 chord and end on a D major, and to have that transition between those two key centers sound as organic as this sounds. So it's really halfway through the first half at that line, searching in the sun for another overload, when it goes to that D minor 7, A minor 7 to G, that suddenly this shift happens, and yet it feels totally natural. It's a remarkable thing and harder to do when you're writing a song than you'd think. It's a very confident move by Jimmy Webb. So let's listen to that seven bar phrase one more time, and this time really just pay attention to that chord progression and the way that it gently moves you a kind of long distance from the start without you really noticing what's happening. And just to emphasize that chord progression, I'll play along on piano so you can really hear the chords as they move. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload. I hear you singing. So while this first half is more grounded harmonically than the second half, it's not exactly grounded. It's already moving in a lot of interesting directions. It is also, however, more grounded just in terms of the arrangement. This is the simplest that the arrangement is during this first phrase of the first half of the first verse. For the most part, it's just that main Wrecking Crew band. You can hear Carol Kay's bass over on the left. You can hear Jim Gordon's drums over on the right. Gordon's playing really nice stuff on this track. He's playing with brushes. I talked quite a bit about wire brush playing, actually, on my episode about Hyper Ballad by Bjork from a couple years ago. So if you want to know more about wire brush drumming, uh, you can listen to that unlikely episode. Um, but they used uh, wire brush drumming in a really cool way on that song. But this is just some straightforward stuff where he's playing a steady backbeat, but because he's using the brush, it just gives a nice sort of bounce to the groove he's playing. I am a lineman for the county. And, and of course, you can hear the acoustic guitar over on the right. I'm pretty sure that's Glenn Campbell. And then over on the left, Al Casey's electric guitar, also adding some nice harmony. So that's the first half, and the magic of this song is in the contrast between the first half and the second half of each verse. That contrast comes through in the music, of course, but it also comes through in the lyrics, and I think that the lyrics are a particularly important part of what makes this song work. So these opening lyrics, they're very plain spoken and introductory, and they're also very grounded, both sort of abstractly and also literally. So in the grand tradition of the workin' song, our protagonist begins by just really straightforwardly introducing himself. I am a lineman for the county, and I drive the main road. So he's on the ground, he's in his car, he drives the main road, and what's he doing? He's searching in the sun for another overload. Okay, so actually that second half of the phrase is a little bit more poetic, right? It's a little bit more evocative. It's not just, I am a lineman for the county, and I drive the main road. About as straightforward as you can get, but searching in the sun for another overload, that's actually a little bit elevated. So there's already been this subtle gear shift, even in this first half, in the second half of the phrase, and that actually corresponds with where that interesting harmonic shift happens, where it goes from kind of solidly in the key of B flat F to suddenly being in the key of G and D. So think of it this way, we get this first very grounded, very straightforward phrase over a pretty grounded and straightforward chord progression. I am a lineman for the county, and I drive the main road. But then he gets a little bit more poetic and we get this subtle shift. He says he's searching in the sun for another overload. It's still a practical explanation of his job. I'm sure the sun does sort of blind your eyes when you're looking up at the wires looking for overloads, but there's just something a little bit more artful about it and a little bit more evocative. Searching in the sun for another 
So already, instead of thinking of this verse as two halves, you can almost think of it as four quarters because that first quarter, very plain spoken and grounded. That second quarter, slightly more poetic, slightly more harmonically complicated and unexpected. So of course, that brings us to the second half of the verse, and this is where the song goes from being a nice song with a nice chord progression to being something magical. And it happens, of course, when the lineman leaves the ground and climbs up on the wire. I hear you singing in the wire. I can hear you through the wine and the witcher tall lineman is still on the line. I know I need a small. So the image that this song is conjuring, and the image to kind of hold in your head, is one that Jimmy Webb has described when he was when he was writing the song. It's sort of something he saw as he was driving across the country and stuck in his mind as a beautiful image. And that is the lone figure, the lineman, up on a telephone wire, all alone, with the sun, you know, kind of setting in the background. Just this image of sort of beautiful elevated loneliness. And this part of the song, this second half of the verse, really beautifully captures that. Every element of it—the arrangement, the instruments, the chord progression, the melody, and the lyrics—they're all working in harmony to create this image, and it's just very powerful stuff. So let's just start with the harmony. This chord progression is sort of an evolving story. It never stays put in one place, and it never arrives back where it started. It's just constantly cycling and shifting into new modalities, new sounds, new colors. And this second half of the verse is certainly continuing that. So remember, we started kind of in B flat, moving through this sort of B flat F area, similar to where the song started. And then there was this gentle shift into a G, moving to a D major, into a slightly different key center. It keeps Keeps that center for most of the second half of the verse, but it shifts its focus and its kind of directional movement in a way that's that's pretty dramatic. So the first chord here in the second half is a C major. That's the flat seven in the key of, of D. So we're kind of moving into the double plagal cadence territory, which is something I've talked about before. So we start on a C major chord, just sits on C major for a couple bars, and then it begins a nice walk down in the bass. So it goes from C major to a G over B with that B in the bass. To G minor over B flat, that's kind of a four minor in the key of D major. To D over A, that kind of resolves to a one over five, so D over A. Then it goes to A7 sus, which is really strongly leading us back to that D major. So it's kind of like, okay, we're in D major now. We're going to resolve, but of course, it doesn't resolve. And the most beautiful part of the song happens at the very end here, when he sings the Wichita lineman is still on the line. He jumps up to a D, the tonic in the key of D, but instead of resolving to a D major, it goes to a B flat major, then up to a C, then up to a B flat with a chord inversion, and then up to a C. It never resolves to D major when you think it's going to, and it doesn't resolve back to F to start the next verse either. I hear you singing in the wire. So the harmony is mostly moving down through this section, right? The chords are moving down, the bass is steadily descending, until the surprising moment at the end when both the melody and the chords jump upward and begin to climb. Is still on the So that brings us to the strings and the organ, as well as Glenn Campbell's vocal melody, because those three things are actually doing something different than the chords, which are doing that steady downward stepping. You know, they're kind of climbing downward. The melody, the organ, and the strings are all staying put, and they're very elevated during this whole section, which kind of lines up with that image of the lineman being up on the wire, being up on the line, and doing his job. He's kind of suspended above the ground, high in the air. The way that this is written really supports that imagery. So for starters, the melody is just placed in contrast with the harmony because the harmony is steadily moving downward, but the melody repeats the same notes over and over again. 
Right until the very end, the melody is constrained within a fifth, a sort of a D to an A. He just sings, I hear you singing in the wire, I can hear you through the wine, and the Wichita lineman is still on the... All of that is just within this nice, very easy fifth for a tenor um, from a D to an A, and it's that final note that's the surprising leap is still on the line. He jumps up to the D. So it's this very dramatic shift that was set up by all the kind of static motion before it. So we're kind of assembling this one piece at a time, and I want you to listen again. And this time, try to hear both of those things. Listen to how the harmony is moving downward, and listen to how Campbell's singing is actually staying put until that very last note. Here we go. I hear you singing in the wire. I can hear you through the wine And the Wichita lineman Is still on the line So of course you've listened to this enough times that you're also probably hearing that beautiful Gilbranson organ there in the middle and the strings as well because they're kind of supporting what Glenn Campbell's vocals are doing. They're holding a really high but really steady pitch throughout this whole thing. The organ is really just kind of undulating and oscillating on this very high D that creates this uncanny sound, this really kind of piercing, high, warbling sound that matches up beautifully with the strings over on the left. And there's this one violin part. The first violinist, whoever that was on this session, really earned their paycheck because they just do this incredible jump up to a super high D. These are the kinds of notes that really only the violin can hit. And it's so, it's almost beyond the realm of human hearing. Um, it's certainly beyond the range of my sampled string section that I use on this. Like whoever programmed the sampler was like, nah, the violinist in this sampled string section is just not going to play that high. But the violinist at this recording session did, and it sounds so good. And the witch. Just ridiculous. It's an exquisite string arrangement and a tremendous first violin performance. So that leads us to the lyrics because there's an interesting interplay going on between the organ and the strings and the lyrics, which are describing something that the organ and the strings are kind of replicating sonically. So there's this profound sort of musical-lyrical consonance going on between those instruments and the lyrics. So he sings, I hear you singing in the wire, I can hear you through the wine, and the Wichita lineman is still on the line. So he's still doing his job. We're still kind of in the realm of the practical. He is listening to the line and checking the signal, and he hears you singing in the wire. He can hear you through the wine, through the high-frequency wine of all of that noise coming through the signal. And of course, that's kind of what the strings and the organ are replicating, is this chiming high-frequency sound that's ringing out as he attempts to listen through it. It's this unusual mix of lyrical and musical imagery, and it just it just works so beautifully. I mean, it conjures it so wonderfully. This consonance between all the different elements of the song working to paint this picture, and I'm sure I'm not alone in like my mind's eye. I can just see this. I can picture it, and I can even feel it. It just really captures this moment. I hear you singing in the wire I can hear you through the wine And the Wichita lineman Is still on the So those magical two chords at the end, that B-flat leading to the C major, that's really where this song just fully achieves liftoff, this total sense of weightlessness, and just floats up into the sky. I mean, it's super beautiful. A big part of that is Al DeLore's arrangement, his string arrangement, because he does something subtle that I think works very, very well over this kind of a chord progression. So like I said, rather than resolving to D major or resolving back to F major, it does this kind of fake out, and it goes to a B-flat major, which then leads to a C major, and then it just repeats those two chords again, B flat major to C major. 
On top of that, there's this iconic melody being played. It's this repeating melody that's played on that Gulbranson organ, sort of emulating a Morse code kind of a sound. Just this D, you know, this little melody that sits on a D, and then it moves up to F, then back down to D. And that's also pretty static. It's staying in place. So it's actually moving back and forth between two chords, but there's this feeling like it's climbing, and that all comes down to Al Delory's string arrangement, because the violins are playing a leading tone that steadily ascends. They start on a D, which is the third in B flat, and then the lead violin goes up to an E, which is the third in C major, and then when it goes back to the B flat, the lead violin keeps going up and goes up to an F which is the fifth in B-flat, and finally goes up to a G, which is the fifth in C. So as a result, you have this upward motion happening in the strings, even though the other parts are all actually kind of just going back and forth between the same two chords. It's a beautiful effect and really well done. Listen one more time to that section, and then we'll go on into the next time through, and just pay attention for that in the violins. I'll play along on piano so you can hear that tone as it steadily ascends. It's still on the The second verse returns to the ground as the lineman considers some more of the practicalities of his job. And if it snows that stretch down south won't ever stand the strain. Before turning inward once again. And I need you more than won't you. And I want you for all time. And the Wichita lineman is still on the line. And I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time, and the Wichita lineman is still on the line. Some of the most evocative lyrics ever written, and also the final lyrics written for this song. You've now heard the extent of the material that Jimmy Webb sent to Al Delore and Glenn Campbell to record, and they were wise enough when they heard it to realize that that's all they needed, that this was a complete story, because really, it's these two verses, right? It just goes one verse, then another verse. But when you really look at it, even just look at the lyrics, it has this complex emotional arc that it goes through that's really kind of a four-act structure that in the hands of the right orchestrator can be turned into a really incredible song, which of course is what happened. So if you think of the first half of each verse as the kind of grounded section and the second half as the elevated section when the Wichita lineman goes back up on the line and it gets into more abstract and emotional sort of feelings, the whole structure of this song really comes into focus. So the second verse begins with just really straightforward kind of, again, just standard country work and song lyrics. You know, I need a small vacation, but it don't look like rain. And if it snows, that stretch down south won't ever stand the strain. You can read some metaphor into that, but that's pretty straightforward stuff. I mean, he's really just kind of describing the concerns and logistics of being a lineman in Wichita, Kansas. But then, of course, in the next breath, he utters one of the most beautiful lyrics ever sung by a person, this profound and mysterious reflection on love that catches you completely unprepared. And I need you more than want you. Of course, it doesn't really catch you unprepared, does it? The more I've analyzed this song and the more I've learned it and come to appreciate it, the more I've realized that actually Jimmy Webb did a beautiful job of setting up that final refrain, that little couplet, I need you more than want you and I want you for all time. I mean, that's some profound romantic stuff, but it doesn't quite come out of nowhere because this song hasn't ever really just been a guy who does a job reflecting on the nature of that job. It kind of starts that way, but as we've already been over, it really quickly begins to elevate things and get a little bit more poetic. And that first time through the second half of the verse, when he hears you singing in the wire, he can hear you through the wine. We've already entered this kind of elevated headspace. So by the time the second verse rolls around and suddenly things have gone into this profound, mysterious place, it actually feels really natural and in a certain way logical, like this is the only place the song really could have gone. 
And I need you more than want you And I want you for all time Much has been written about that couplet, I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time. It's a really beautiful combination of words because it kind of fakes you out, right? I need you more than want you. Well, that actually doesn't sound that nice, right? I mean, I need you, but I, I don't necessarily want you. But of course, that's not really what he's saying. I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time. So I really need you, which is a profound expression of what it feels like to love someone. Many, many people more qualified than I have taken a crack at understanding what exactly that means, but I really like actually how Jimmy Webb describes it in Dylan Jones's book. He says, I was trying to express the inexpressible, the yearning that goes beyond yearning, that goes into another dimension when I wrote that line. It was a moment where the language failed me, really. There was no way for me to pour this out except to go into an abstract realm, and that was the line that popped out. Webb continues, I think the fascination with it comes from the fact that it just pushes the language a little bit beyond what it was really meant to express, because it could be deemed perfectly nonsensical. I need you more than want you, and I want you for all time. I mean, those are abstract concepts all jammed up together there, but that's because it's trying to express the inexpressible. And I need you more than want you. And I want you for all time And the Wichita lineman Is still on the line it's such an emotional mic drop. It's such a perfect moment of songwriting that it almost feels weird to go back to doing like granular analysis of this arrangement after that. I mean, that's the song. That's the lyric. That's the song. That's the moment. It's when the whole thing comes together. And it's perfect. I mean, you don't need anything more than that. And this song is done. But there is some really nice stuff that happens after this. And actually, if you think of this song as kind of a big, long narrative, which is kind of how I think of it, there are some new elements that are introduced. And the story isn't quite over, despite the fact that it's reached its emotional climax. For starters, there's this beautiful horn arrangement that comes in that Al Delore has written to just merge wonderfully with the strings. It's mixed over on the right. And it actually kind of takes over the role that the strings were performing the first time, the strings this second time actually just hold a steady D, this very high pitch, totally steady the whole time, and the horns are the ones that steadily climb to give that sense of ascension that the strings did the first time around. Listen for that. just goes to show how effective Al Delore's arrangement is on this recording, that it adds these nice little bits of variety to such a simple song. Just to emphasize that, remember, this is what happens the first time. The strings are the ones that are giving that sense of climbing. It's very light and ethereal. It's way up in the stratosphere, just steadily climbing. And it's a significant contrast with what they do the second time through with the strings. They're still up there, but they're holding steady. And the horns are the ones that are moving up. And then rather than moving up from a D to an E to an F to a G, the horns move up from an F to a G to an A, which is actually the major seventh over B flat, so a slightly richer tone. So they have a kind of a different trajectory upward. They're giving the same sense, but it's down lower. It's a little fuller. The harmony is a little bit fuller. It's a really nice contrast. (laughs) 
I mean, who needs a bridge? Who needs a chorus when you have a guitar solo that works that beautifully? Just the interplay between those parts is so great. We're going to listen to that a couple more times, and I really want you to start hearing just the way that everything leaves space for everything else. The horns will answer the call from the guitar, then the horns will play a pad while the strings play something a little bit more busy. I mean, it's it's very straightforward arranging in a certain way by Al Delory, but the guy just, he just nailed it. I mean, it's such a great arrangement. So let's start with that guitar tone, that beautiful low guitar with that tremolo on it. What a great tone. So the baritone guitar has never been a super common guitar, but it's actually more common than you'd think. Once I started knowing to listen for them and keep an eye out for them, I started seeing them more places. I've actually been listening to a few records where baritone guitars have turned up lately, and it's a wonderful sound. I really kind of want to get one. They're not super expensive. You know, all kinds of companies make them. They're pretty easy to find. And it's such a great sound because it sits right between the register of the bass guitar and the electric guitar. And as a result, it kind of has the best of both worlds. You can actually watch Glenn Campbell performed this on television, it's on YouTube, I'll link it in the show notes, and he plays the solo on a Fender Bass 6. Though, according to at least the Wrecking Crew documentary, Carol Kay says this was a Dan Electro baritone guitar that she owned that Glenn was messing around with and they decided was the right tone for the solo. Glenn Campbell was a, was a heck of a guitar player and I had this Dan bass guitar that had special pickups and bridge and strings on it and got a really great gutty sound and he picked it up and, and, and did the solo on it, it was great. Campbell clearly liked that sound. A year later, he used the baritone guitar for the solo on another Jimmy Webb classic, Galveston. And right there at the end of the song, you can hear that distinctive, gutty sound. It's a distinct sound once you know what you're listening for, and I hope that you'll all start to notice it a little bit more when you hear a baritone guitar, and in particular, that baritone guitar with a little bit of tremolo. I will now forever associate that sound with Glenn Campbell. So you can kind of see how all of these small decisions that were made in the recording of this song added up to whatever that magic is that this song has, you know? Deciding to use this strange organ, this Gilbranson organ that Jimmy Webb happened to like, deciding to go with a baritone guitar for the solo, making the decision to just record it with the solo rather than adding a bridge or a chorus or some third section. All of these decisions were kind of small in isolation, but taken together, they resulted in this incredible song. And I think that's actually a useful insight into the songwriting and production process. It's really just a series of decisions. You make one decision, you make another decision, you just keep doing the work, making the decisions, and eventually you've got a song, and every now and then, especially if you're working with good people, those decisions result in something that somehow feels bigger than any individual decision you made while you were creating it. So just to highlight a little bit more of Al Delory's arrangement, I love how the guitar, the horns, and the strings are sort of talking with one another through this instrumental section. Check it out. So first the guitar plays this opening line. Then the horns respond, Bana, with these lovely pads. Then as the guitar plays its next phrase, matching the melody, the strings play this angelic ascending line that moves in total contrast with what the guitar is playing. All three parts, the guitar, the horns, and the strings, end on this one pad together, and then for the final phrase, they move in tandem, kind of echoing and bouncing off of one another through to the end of the phrase. Like, holy cow, right? That is some immaculate arranging, just a chef's kiss of an instrumental interlude. 
So listen back to it one more time and really try to hear that interplay. Listen for the way that the guitar and the horns and strings start kind of bouncing off of one another, then slowly pull into focus and then work together in tandem through to the end of the phrase. All right, ears on. Let's see what we can hear. And with that, it's time to bring it home. And I need you more than want you. And I want you for all time. And the Wichita lineman is still on the line. To me, Wichita lineman demonstrates that there's a truth in music. A truth that goes beyond words and harmony, beyond geography and identity, and into the realm of pure expression. When talking about his song, Jimmy Webb said the following, What I was trying to say was you could see someone working in construction or working in a field, a migrant worker or a truck driver, and you may think you know what's going on inside him, but you don't. You can't assume that a man isn't a poet. And that's what the song is about. I love that sentiment, but to me, Wichita Lyman is also about something a little bit more abstract. Across this country and across the world, there are lines that connect us, lines that we can't always see, that we can't always hear, but that connect us nonetheless. You could call it love, you could call it humanity, but it's something we can all sense, and as disconnected as we may feel, we're all just out here, singing on the wire. And so those two chords revolve, suspended in the air, and the song never truly ends because the lineman is still up there, checking the lines, maintaining the wires, and feeling a love that defies expression. His signal travels outward, from Kansas to the American coastline, out across the oceans, across borders and territories to the farthest points of the earth. It's a feeling, a pulse, a shimmer, picking up speed as it circles the globe again and again and again. That'll do it for my analysis of Wichita Lineman, a simple song that's anything but simple, an unfinished song that is exactly what it was always supposed to be. Special thanks to Danny Tedesco for his documentary on The Wrecking Crew, and to Dylan Jones for his wonderful book about Wichita Lineman. Both were helpful resources as I worked on this episode, and if you're intrigued by this period of music, by these studio musicians, by all the cool stuff that happened in the late 1960s in Los Angeles, I hope that you'll check them both out. Thanks to all of you for listening to Strong Songs. Sometimes I think about the fact that I get to make this show for so many people and it honestly gets a little bit overwhelming. It's really cool that I get to share my musical thoughts with all of you. So whether you're a patron or a longtime listener, whether you've only been listening for a little while or whether this is your very first episode, thanks so much for listening to Strong Songs. Of course, you can find all sorts of links down in the show notes, links to support the show via Patreon or PayPal, a link for the Strong Songs store where you can get some Strong Songs merch, their playlists, there's a newsletter that I promise I'm going to send out at some point here, there's social media links, and plenty more, so find that all down in the show notes. This episode's outro soloist is the great Carlos Eni, better known online as Insane in the Rain Music, playing the baritone sax, so stick around for Carlos, and I'll be back in two weeks for more Strong Songs. (laughs) 